Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is a podcast. From the South China Morning Post. Uh, rice stream, okay. sea urchin, brownie too, house macro, and mm. then red napper. Thank you. You eat the sea, uh, sea urchin okay. first, maybe non time series. So, Susan, can you tell us a bit about what you do? Like, it sounds like you probably have the best job in Hong Kong. I have the best job in Hong Kong. I get Susan Jung, a trained pastry chef, is the food and wine editor for the South China Morning Post. While Benice and I may be foodies, Susan, on the other hand, is on a whole new level. She's a pro. Sushi is so complex. That's what, what I find fascinating about it. It's so, there's something to learn. Sushi. Everybody knows sushi. It's a food that needs no introduction. Sushi can be found on the menu at hundreds of thousands of Japanese restaurants worldwide. Outside of Japan, you'll find sushi that looks different, tastes different, and is already a big part of the local cuisine, rather than being, well, Japanese. That much like uh, Italian pizza or Mexican tacos, it has a distinctively American flavor. But when we dig deeper into sushi's history, we find you were not supposed to eat the rice in the beginning. They don't eat the rice, just only for fish. We find out the California roll is inside out because Americans were freaked out by seaweed. Seaweed, black color, is it edible? It's weird. And besides sushi being delicious, the popularity of Japanese food can be attributed to America's globalization. The sushi boom started in Los Angeles, which was kind of the center of global pop culture. This is Eat Drink Asia, where we dive into Asian foods that have gone global. I'm Bernice Chan. And I'm Alcura Reinfrank. To find out about the journey of sushi and how it became what it is today... I don't want to eat cream cheese in my sushi. Stay with us. So, Bernice, you were saying that sushi used to be eaten without rice? That's right. That was a long, long time ago, before it was sushi as we know it today. How long are we talking, though? The third century. Third century? They started the narezushi, but not, they don't call narezushi at that time. Who's speaking? My name is Kaznari Araki. I'm executive sous chef at Nobu Intercontinental Hong Kong. Chef Araki has been making sushi for decades. The narazushi he's talking about is a kind of fermented fish and also the ancestor of modern-day sushi, which originated along the Mekong River in Southeast Asia. You know a Mekong River for the, you know, Vietnam, Laos, Myanmar, the Mekong River. So people in that area ate a lot of fish from the Mekong River. Hmm. That area is really hot. So they have to find out how to keep it. That's where the rice comes in. So they use the rice and salt to uh, ferment the, the fish. So the rice used to cover the fish? Yeah. So you first scale the fish, clean the insides, and then rub salt into the fish 
before putting them in a bucket and then covering them with a mixture of rice and salt. And then wait. For how long? Six months to up to three years. And that's a long time for sushi. I'm not waiting that long. When they need it to eat, just take it out the rice out. They don't eat the rice, just only for the uh, fish. Because the rice was would be too salty to eat? Too salty and yeah, cannot eat it. It's a melted already. It's just like water. Oh man, the rice is the best bit. That way of preserving fish was used for hundreds of years. And it spread from the Mekong region, probably through to ancient China, and eventually was adopted in Japan. And then... And 12 centuries, little by little, they uh, tried to eat the rice. So is this in Japan? Japan. Now I'm talking about Japan. No more, you know, South Asia and China. Now I'm talking about Japan right now. Fast forward to the Edo period. In the early 1600s, when people started to use vinegar to marinate the fish and season the rice. You can just mix it and marinate it a couple hours or one, or one, one night and eat together. So instead of waiting for years to ferment the fish to eat, now you can eat it overnight. So this is kind of like old age fast food. And the size of the fish changed over time as well. So back in the third century, it was a whole piece whole of fish? fish? It's huge, but this size. About the size of the palm of your hand? Yes, this is a, yeah. Bigger than the palm of your hand, like the whole circumference of your hand. Yeah, this is the size of the nigiri. This is a regular nigiri. He shows me the old sushi he draws on the piece of paper, and it's like three times the size of the regular sushi that we eat now. Really? Maybe I prefer that. I could eat more sushi. <laughs> so it's a simultaneously. Size is a smaller, and time is a faster. That's very important to make the sushi history. So again, fast forward hundreds of years from the Edo to the Meiji period. Meiji era, probably 1900 something. Yes. Ice come out. Right. So ice coming out means you can keep it fresh. So you don't have to marinate it. You just cut it and keep it on the ice. And uh, whenever you're making the rice, and just cut the fish on top and you can eat it. Fresh one. That must have really revolutionized Probably. To, uh, sushi. Yeah, to put in the cold area. Still in uh, Ginza in Japan, very high-end restaurant using ice. Really? Not refrigerator, ice. Because ice is a moisture. If you put them in the refrigerator, it dry out. But if you put in a box and the ice underneath, underneath and put them in the fish on top, moisture it and never dry. Right. Just to make sure I've got this straight, so it started with rice being used to preserve the fish, then we had vinegar added to the rice and the fish to be eaten together, then suddenly ice comes on the scene, and finally people can eat the fish raw and fresh. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is finally the sushi that we're eating today, right? Yeah, that's close enough, although that doesn't include the California roll. Like, how were you introduced to sushi? Do you remember the first time you ate it? I do. It was in California. And the first thing I tried was a California roll, which is so different from what I'm eating now. What did you think of that roll at the time? It was, nothing was unfamiliar. I mean, it was, you know, crab stick, um, cucumber, avocado, rice, 
and seaweed. So nothing was unfamiliar. It's just that it was in a different form that I'd never had before. So even then, I thought it was delicious, even though now I would never order it. <laughs> yeah, what do you think so how did they come up with the idea for the California roll? Okay, so to understand that, you first need to know there are generally two kinds of sushi, nigiri and maki. And in Japanese, nigiri means to hold, while maki means to roll. So when you're talking about sushi, you've got the nigiri, which is the little mound of rice and the slice of fish on top, whereas the maki is the round roll of sushi, which is covered in seaweed, right? That's right. So what's special about the California roll is that it does not only have ingredients that were never used before, like avocado, crab meat, or even cream cheese, but... This California roll is inside out, not the seaweed outside. Why is that? Because um, most of the Americans didn't like it, seaweed. Black color. Is it edible? It's weird. There's a lot of debate about who invented the California roll. Some say it's Hidekazu Tojo in Vancouver. Some say it's Ken Souza in Los Angeles. And some say it's Ichiro Mashita. But whoever it was, he only had one intention, to hide it. They don't see any seaweed outside, so they can eat it. In a minute, how raw fish and sour rice, things most Westerners had never experienced before, got so popular worldwide. Here's a song about sushi by sushi fan Holly Christina from New Zealand. I like sushi. Kira, think about it. It took almost 2,000 years for sushi to evolve from fermented fish in the ancient Mekong to today's sushi of all kinds of varieties that are enjoyed by so many people. I know, it's crazy to think about it, but people in the West didn't become sushi lovers overnight. Hello? Hi, James. Is that you? To find out how sushi became accepted by the Western mainstream, you first need to take a broader look at Japan. I spoke to James Farah, Associate Professor of Sociology at Sophia University in Tokyo. Can you tell me, when was Japanese food, I guess, when did it start to be accepted in the West? When was that um, peak time that it became popular? Right. I I think it's important to sort of think about, you know, what what really made Japanese food so popular abroad. And uh, first of all, I think there really are multiple booms in Japanese food. And, and we tend to remember, depending on our age, we tend to remember uh, some of them more than others. But the first is actually in the 1930s. And- 
it, with sukiyaki. So there was actually a globalization of sukiyaki. Do you know what sukiyaki is? Yep, it's kind of Japanese hot pot that's sweet in flavor. It was served by women in kimonos, and everyone who writes about it always talks about the women in kimonos serving Japanese food. The next big boom was teppanyaki in the 1970s and 80s. And this was also a kind of exoticism. This is actually a meat-oriented cuisine, very easy, like sukiyaki, easy for Western people to like because it's basically meat, it's beef, and it's also served, though, in an exotic way by a cook who's cooked on a, a metal plate in front of you. And of course, this still exists, so many people are familiar with it. But this was something that popularized also in the post-war period. So really, before we get to the sushi boom, which is the, the biggest of all, there was already two major uh, trends in Japanese food, both of which are characterized by showmanship, performance, and exoticism. So I think these are all important elements of what made Japanese food popular. Sushi was something much more radical because it involved teaching people uh, both in the West and, say, in China or India or other places to eat raw fish, which was not a standard part of the diet in almost any of the places that we're talking about. So this really, I think, uh, was something that became popular only in the late 1970s, starting in California and spreading. And the sushi boom had a lot to do with American global influence, I think. So rather than seeing it just as uh, Japan's global influence, it's also magnified by the fact that the sushi boom started in Los Angeles, which was kind of the center of global pop culture. And you had Hollywood stars, and you had California chefs, and other you know, opinion leaders embracing this new culture of sushi. So those were sushi influencers? You can say that, although sushi came to America at a perfect time. One of the interesting connections here really is happening outside of Japanese cuisine per se, and that is really the change in Western cuisine. At this period, this notion that, well, Western cuisine is too fatty, it's too oily, it, it, you've got too much uh, butter and sauces. It's also when microbiotics, a health-orientated movement, was flourishing in America. And at that point, Japanese cuisine was exactly what everyone's talking about. Wow, it's light. It focuses on the ingredients. Uh, there's no sauces. There's very little extra fat. I think the fact that Japanese food came to the West Coast and became popular at exactly the same moment that we had this culture of fitness, of, of, of training, of everyone trying to lose weight, of everyone going to the gym – I think there is an element of coincidence there, too, that Japanese food, which had these properties. I was going to say, like, when you were speaking about uh, sushi, I, I feel like it kind of infiltrated American pop culture in some ways, like referring to, say, like the Breakfast Club, where Molly Ringwald brings in sushi. What's that? Sushi. Sushi? Some of the other kids are looking at it being Rice. like, oh, gross, what's that? You won't accept a guy's tongue in your mouth and you're going to eat that? Can I eat She's the high class, she's the popular girl, she knows what sushi is. Exactly. Also, if you listen to our earlier episode on bubble tea, which you should definitely listen to, you might remember Professor Krishnendu Ray's theory. Which is what I call a hierarchy of taste. The higher the class your food is associated with, it is easier to circulate in global circuits and acquire prestige. James Farah echoes that too. 
Japanese food was brought around the world by some of the wealthiest migrants. The sushi boom happened at a time when Japan was itself becoming a global economic power, and a lot of the consumers in the in the global cities in which sushi was becoming popular were Japanese businessmen who were very rich. So it was associated not with poor migrants, as were many Asian foods in the West, but rather with rich migrants. And I think this association of Japanese food with wealthy Japanese expatriates was also another part of the reason why it had that high status. It was, you know, it was different when Japanese food first came to the United States in 1905, when Japanese people were uh, working class migrants. It didn't have that image. Now, you mentioned Japanese food, especially in the early years, it was exotic for the West. Um, Now, Japan is in reach of a lot of people that can travel. But do you think, do these Japanese restaurants, does it still hold aura, that being of exoticism? Well, I think think one way of looking at it is that for the Western diner, I think sushi was exotic, first of all, in, in its initial phases, because it was literally made right in front of you on the counter by the sushi master. And and it, we forget how rare this was. And it's made for you individually. And, and it's also made by hand. And you eat it, if you eat it properly, also by hand. So you really should be eating it with your hands? Yes. But we, should we be doing that? Yes. Yes. The chefs like it if you eat it with your hands. It's a very rare situation. Right. Chef Araki again. And make a rice by hand and you eat by hands and eat it. Very honest and pure and it's clean. Well, another thing to think about is that the Japanese may have pioneered the chef's counter, where the interaction between the chef and the customer is an honest one. And this spirit of craftsmanship, that you dedicate your life in perfecting this one thing in the world, is really quite incredible. Although there is no perfection for sushi chefs. And how long does it take to become a sushi master? Never, never reach the sushi master. Never. I'm studying still. Still? Still, of course. 40, 50 years and never be a master. If you think you are a master, you're not a master. You stop. Master means I think it's a process. You never reach the master. And in his younger days, Chef Araki made lots of crazy maki or rolls. They had things like meat, dried tomato, mozzarella cheese, and even colorful eggs. I hated it. <laughs> you hated it? Yeah, I hated it. Wow, it's not, it's, not, it's, not, it's not sushi. After chasing the trends at the time, now he just wants to focus on making simple, good nigiri. And the secret recipe, he says, is kokoro. Kokoro means uh, spirit. So use a kokoro to make a, you know, make a food. Then people feel the kokoro. When I was a young, you know, I, I tried to, you know, make, you know, crazy rolls or, you know, the technique and, you know, how to decorate it, you know. But right now, I'm, I, I, I feel that I want to make a dish with my kokoro together.
By the way, there are still people in Japan who still make the old-school fermented fish. In Shiga Prefecture in Japan. It's like a fish version of prosciutto and makes a perfect drink snack with sake. Where do you see the next trend heading with Japanese food? Then you go from there to the last 10 years. Ramen is now taking over sushi. So if you were to look at the most popular Japanese trend now, it's ramen. Ramen is flexible, and it's really, certainly on the supply side, something that anybody can jump into. And I think here you see a lot of people doing ramen who have not only who are not Japanese, but also often not Asian in background. And, and you know, we might see another one with izakaya, you know, this new drinking culture, which is focused not on the food, but actually on sake, on highballs and various types of Japanese drinks. Mm, I do like this trend, and now I'm craving ramen. Anything noodles, I'm there. <laughs> no, but back to sushi. Has there been anything that's really stuck out to you while you've been doing your interviews? I was really surprised that this fermenting fish actually came from the Mekong River area all a lie. I thought it all came from Japan. I know. Who knew? <laughs> all right. But looking forward, we've now finished sushi. But next episode, we are heading to China. We're talking Szechuan sauce. Introduced by fast food chain McDonald's, thanks to Mulan. And then we have Rick and Morty and all these pop culture references. But where does Szechuan sauce come from? And what's it actually supposed to taste like? We like this episode was produced by Yang Yang. We want to thank Chef Kazunari Araki, James Ferrer, our colleague Susan Jung, and our intern King Wu. Music by Holly Christina. If you want to ask us about a dish or a drink, tweet us at Beijing Calling or at Alkira Ryan Frank. Eat Drink Asia is a monthly podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher and Shimalaya. Basically anywhere you listen to your podcasts. Until next time, happy eating! Hi, my name is Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic, and I'm excited to talk to you about Club Med. Club Med operates beach and mountain resorts and is the best all-inclusive getaway for families. They have Club Med Punta Cana, their flagship family resort, and many other options in Mexico, the Caribbean, and around the world. Club Med are the pioneers of the all-inclusive concept, which is the best way to vacation. Great for families, groups, or even solo travelers looking for land and water sports, delicious food, and a place to make unforgettable memories. Visit clubmed.us, call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.